Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with three guests about the debt ceiling deal and what it entails and what we should take away from it. These three guests were all with us just a couple of months ago. Denville Duncan is an economist and associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Dr. Craig Johnson is associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU also. And uh, DJ Masson is a clinical professor of finance, the Kelly School of Business at IU. So you can reach us on the phone at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also reach us by email, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can reach us on Twitter at noon edition. Well, Denville, Craig, DJ, thank you, all three of you, for coming back and joining us again. You were with us in March when things were starting to heat up about this, and uh, we're glad to have you back. I just want to throw out this question, and I guess we'll start. Let's start with DJ and then go to Denville and then go to Craig. Um, what do you think of uh, you know the deal that where we sit right now? I mean, this is it, it all kind of came down to the wire. President still hasn't signed it, but he says he will before seven o'clock tonight. Um, what are your what's your reaction to the way this process worked and the deal that we got, DJ? Well, well, I think that the um, the process was very convoluted and in in the long run, it's not something that I like to see just because of all the confusion and the the, the problems. But in the end the deal that ended up coming out was actually pretty good from um at least from the um from the uh, administration's perspective they gave away some things but not a lot um i i think the biggest plus out of it is that was basically pushed off the whole debt ceiling debate until january of 25 after the next elections so yes everybody gave up something but in the end um it, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And we now have a budget deal, and at least we have the deficit, uh, uh, the, the cap set up. So we'll see what happens. Denville? Yeah, I, I kind of want to echo those sentiments as well. Uh, this is not my favorite process uh, in terms of just timing. Um, it makes it very uncertain, and that uncertainty is, is never a good thing. And in a market economy like this one. Uh, but at the end of the day, the deal was passed, uh, the debt limit has been raised, and I think a lot of the uncertainties that people were kind of you know, thinking about in the last couple of weeks, months, have now been somewhat settled at least for another two years or so. So that part of it, I think, is, is kind of the good, good, the good outcome, let's put it this way. Uh, we can get into some of the specifics later. Absolutely, and Craig, your initial reaction? Yeah, overall, I think it's, I agree. I think it's a good deal for the American people. It's a good deal for financial markets and economic markets uh, around the world, frankly. Um, process, though, has to be, uh, in my opinion, looked at very seriously for some substantial reform. Um, but overall, uh, we're in a much better position today than we were in the last time we were on your show. So, <laughs> so that's a good yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we can breathe some something of a sigh of relief. Certainly, um, I wanted to follow up on one piece of the deal that I think didn't get a ton of attention, but is that there are both sides agreed to um, they have kind of a, a, a triggering mechanism uh, that forces them to pass certain spending bills between now. I think between now and September. I'm a little hazy on those details, but there is still. I guess where I'm going here is that there's still. Uh, some uh, agreements to come and potentially some further debate on these spending bills that have to happen uh, as we get into the new congressional fiscal year. Can you, each of you, comment, pardon me, on uh, what we can anticipate in the next few months? 
Uh, I mean, I can maybe start uh, just a little bit here. I think your question, I believe, goes to my concern about the process and the concern that each of us has already expressed about the way this is done. So yes, we have a deal, and that's a good thing. But the process by which we, you know, got to that deal is not itself ideal, and it just sets us up for further debates. And so, what is going to happen now? We, I mean, we're in the last part of this fiscal year. The new fiscal year will start October first. And so Congress, at this very moment, if, if the budgetary process was working the way it was intended to work, uh, would be in the process of working through appropriation bills. And those appropriation bills would then uh, you know, determine spending for the next fiscal year, so fiscal year 24. Um, that is still ongoing. And what this deal has done is uh, it hasn't done anything on the monetary side, so that's the first thing. So monetary expenditures, uh, Social Security, Medicare, that kind of sort of stuff. Uh, most of the action is on the discretionary side, and the discretionary side of the budget is the part of the budget that is predominantly featured in the appropriations process. And so they have set these caps, uh, but if we look, you know, so we set these caps, and what you'd expect to see going forward is through the appropriations process, we will pass appropriation bills that respect the caps that have been set in this budget deal. And you know the president would sign those and the agencies get to go off and uh, spend money. But if you look historically, we've not been able to pass those appropriation bills. And what we instead tend to operate on more than anything else are what are called continuing resolutions. And so there's something in here about, you know, which caps apply if you find yourself with a CR bill versus a, an actual appropriation bill. And that part of it is, is still to come. And it's the part I think you're speaking to. That's the that's my big worry is this list, the debt limits. And I think that's the part that I hold on to. Like the rest of it, I'm like, we're going to be at this again sometime around end of September and right throughout the next you know the next couple of fiscal years because we just have not demonstrated the ability to actually pass appropriation bills over the last couple of i would say decades if you will we could, i mean we could go as far back as 2008 right. and, and that i think is is to come yeah 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 i mean the u.s um the u.s actually hasn't had a real budget for like 20 plus years um, but 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 that agreement, I mean, kind of the bottom line was they agreed to cut spending by one and a half trillion dollars over the next 10 years. Now, that's kind of a big target. And of course, things always get fuzzy the farther out you get. But, you know, we are going to see some immediate impact. Um, probably the uh, the uh, student loan forgiveness is now gone or at least is going to be curtailed significantly. Um and then we'll also see the reduction in monies to the IRS, which, look, I'm not a fan of having to pay taxes, but the IRS does a valuable service, and not having that money means that they can't get their systems fully updated. And it also means that people who need service from the IRS, just to get questions answered, are going to have more more trouble. But but that's kind of where it is. They, they froze, you know, like three quarters of the budget is military, Social Security and Medicare, which they can't touch. So they're looking at the other 25%. And isn't like 15% of that debt service? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, which becomes untouchable as well. Yeah, and I think those, those uh, the, the, the agreements require both sides to follow through on those spending cuts or it triggers a 1% across the board cut in, right, in everything except uh, Social Security and Medicare, including defense. So, yes. right, the idea is that then that's another, oh, I don't know, sort of Damocles hanging over everyone, uh, much like the debt the debt limit um, deadline. So hopefully we'll bring, uh, you know, bring some uh, pressure to to those negotiations to get them to get them to happen and uh, and com- conclude. So, Craig, in, when you were on last time, um, you said that it would be a mistake not to look on the revenue side. Uh, you talked about uh, payroll tax, taxes specifically. And then also, uh, DJ, you mentioned that our national debt's like $94,000 per person and that taxes need to go up if anything's going to – if that's going to be addressed. 
are you, I guess, a surprised and b, you know, disappointed that uh, revenues are not part of this deal, Craig? Yeah, I am. A, I'm a little disappointed that revenues are not part of the deal. I think revenues um, need to be a part of any long-term deal, not necessarily a short-term deal, but any long-term deal in terms of the, the fiscal condition of the United States. Revenues, I think, need to be on the table. And I'm disappointed that um, they weren't on the table at all. Uh, and I think in that one area, President Biden got out uh, maneuvered because um, the uh, uh, McCarthy didn't allow revenues to even be discussed, really. He just took that off the table immediately. Um, on the other hand, I would say that, uh, well, going back to what you were talking about in terms of uh, the um, discretionary funding caps, the caps are only on discretionary funding. Um, the budget deficit, as mentioned, is supposed to be reduced by about $1.5 trillion, but that means that it's going to be that $1.5 trillion is going to be concentrated in discretionary funding. It's not going to be, as Denver was talking about before, have any um, uh, impact on mandatory spending. So mandatory spending is just allowed to continue to grow at the rate that it's growing or even a faster rate. And so the cuts are going to be very concentrated between uh, kind of defense and non-defense. I think some of the argument in the future is going to be over defense spending. Um, defense spending really, um, it's not totally unscathed in this agreement, um, but compared to uh, non-defense spending, it's allowed to grow at a very rapid rate, where the, the significant cuts are probably going to be in um, in non-defense spending. So I think that's going to be an area of the future. And I do think that when we're talking about funding non-defense spending, you as well as defense spending, so discretionary spending overall, you need to bring revenues into the picture as well, as opposed to just cuts. DJ, uh, you you know you talked about this as well. Can, I mean, in this in this uh, at, this atmosphere that we have, this political atmosphere, I mean, can taxes go? Where, where do we look to raise revenues? Well, the, the the problem you had is, you know, each side had their kind of lines in the sand, and at least on the Republican side, um, one of the biggest lines in the sand has always been taxes. Um, they had big tax reductions. They didn't want taxes to go up. Um, obviously, on the the flip side on the, the democratic side they were their lines in the sand were more a lot of the social programs and things like social security i think both sides kind of kept the parts they really wanted and i think biden had to say okay fine you know we'll we'll, we'll give up on the revenues because you're giving up on some of the social programs eventually we're gonna the taxes are gonna have to go up i, I mean that's just my own personal view um, just because you need to have the revenues. It's probably going to take at some point getting, um, you know, Democrats getting control of, you know, both houses and the White House, and then maybe they'd have a shot of putting in some changes on the taxes. So that's sort of where I'm from, that you got to do something on the revenues, and it's got to get done eventually. Yeah. We're talking about the debt ceiling and the deal that just passed and is going to be signed into law probably later today by President Joe Biden. He's speaking to the nation at 7 o'clock tonight and says he'll sign that bill before then. Uh, we have Denville Duncan from the uh, O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs as long uh, along with Craig Johnson from the O'Neill School and DJ Masson, who is a clinical professor of finance at the Kelly School of Business. If you have questions or comments, you can join our program today. You can call 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can send us a question on Twitter at Noon Edition. Lori? Well, when we were here, uh, when you three of you were here last time, uh, Craig, you in particular um, opined that this should be a fiscal process, not a political process. But, of course, it's almost it is impossible to uh, separate politics from the fiscal reality. And I wonder if uh, you can talk a little bit about what you think the political implications are. Um, of essentially what happened, which is that the pragmatists were able to come through in the end in both parties. So in, in a sense, the extremes on, if, if you will, the extremes on both sides of the aisle 
uh, didn't weren't able to have their particular uh, priorities addressed um, politically and and looking forward what do you th- what does that bode for the for future negotiations where does it put those uh, let's say the 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 far right and and the far left in terms of their political influence going forward what's what's your view of that well that's a heck of a question there <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in general let me just be clear um, the budgetary process is fundamentally a political process in the way we make decisions uh, at the federal level and state and local government levels is a the budgetary process is fundamentally a, a political process my point is that uh, in terms of the debt limit per se the debt limit should not be involved in politics we should all agree that um, once we incur bills um, we should pay them I'm negotiating over whether we pay our bills or not uh, that should be a non-negotiable we should not do that okay so that's different though the debt limit per se as a constitutional or statutory law is debt is different than the budgeting process you know appropriating funds and now I think that as you mentioned before I think I think the, the commentary was at the center held and I think that's a good thing I think um, both kind of extremes on the left and the right um, didn't get uh, exactly what they want. They're not happy with the deal, but they were also given cover. I think that's one of the, the beautiful things about yeah. the deal is that they were given cover to be able to go out to kind of their constituents and argue against the deal. But enough people in the center, and frankly, enough people with just common sense, um, uh, voted for it. Um, and hopefully they're, they're given cover as well going forward in their primary um, campaigns um, to, have, uh, to have voted for it. And I think it's a, a very good deal. And it says a lot about the political process. The, and it's some very good things about the political process. But it shouldn't, be, in my opinion, it shouldn't be over a negotiation over whether or not we pay our obligations. Once we make these obligations, we should automatically pay them. And nobody should be able to hold hostage, frankly, the United States full faith and credit, as far as I'm concerned. Anybody else want to tackle that? I, I yeah. want to yeah, go ahead. No, I, I agree. <clears throat> I agree with Craig because, you know, the po- the political side of the budgetary process, I think, should focus on the revenues and the expenditures. So how much, you know, what tax policy are we going to implement? How much revenues are we trying to generate? And then how much do we want to spend and what do we want to spend that on? Those are inherently, you know, political, driven by preferences of elected officials who we hope are trying to reflect the preferences of the people who elect them. Uh, But once you make those two decisions, you know, how much to generate in revenues and how much to spend, the byproduct, you know, the the net effect of that is going to be a deficit or a surplus. And if you find yourself in a deficit, then covering that deficit is automatic. I mean, it's implied by your explicit decision to spend more than you generate that you're going to borrow to fill the gap. Um, and so I agree, once once we've made those two first decisions about how much to spend and how much to generate in revenues, there is no further debate to be had about the debt, uh, a debt limit or the extent to which the government can borrow. Uh, that decision is embedded in your initial decision about what to do with spending and revenues, uh, tax revenues. Um, so yeah, I, I fully support that view. I, I think yeah, I, I, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that um, I'm hoping, you know, that they brought up the 14th Amendment and as as a mechanism to try to quash a lot of the debt ceiling issues. Um, obviously, they were not going to do that this round simply because of the time constraints and there's going to be litigation. But I would like to see them pursue that going forward, that that may be the mechanism that helps us get this continuing debt ceiling debate um, off the table. Um, and that we just say, look, you know, we're going to we're going to pay our debts no matter what. And then we can go back and focus on the budget side of it, um, which is where the problem really started. I'm just I'm I'm fascinated by this entire thing, which is pretty complicated for people who who don't um, study it or watch it every day. Although when you guys were all on last time, Denville gave a great description of the deficit versus uh, the debt, which was uh, the deficit is kind of like a river that you're 
You're um, borrowing or you're, you're, you're spending money. It's a river and then it runs into a pond, which becomes, you know, that's the debt at the end of the year. The, what, what you can't pay for becomes part of a pond. I would argue it's not really a pond anymore. It's more like an ocean. <laughs> but but when, you, when you think about it, yeah, you, you called it the accumulation into the, the pond. It's, it's a great description. And now we have this very large pond. And what we're trying to do is reduce the deficit that's flowing into the pond every year. Are we, just, are we sitting on a time bomb here where you know, eventually this debt has to be paid off or does it ever have to be paid off? Any of you, Denvo? It's your analogy. Yeah, I, I'm aware of that. Um, so yeah, so you know, at a fundamental level, you might you might want to say, well, yes, you need to repay your debts. Uh, but I think you also have to think about the dynamics, or at least the way debt is administered. And maybe Craig can talk more to this than I than I can. Um, so I borrow some money from you. I need to repay you. Like there's just no doubt about it. I need to give you back your money. Uh, when that debt matures, whether it's in one month, three months, six months, you know, 10 years, whatever the nature of the financial instrument, I have to repay you, the specific person that borrowed this money from. Uh, but that, that's one way of thinking about the debt. You know, I think the way you frame the question, you're thinking more from a, you know, a kind of a higher level, like the, will the U.S. ever be in a position where there is no debt? Um, the answer to that one, I think, I mean, in my opinion, I don't see us ever getting to that point. I think, you know, mm-hmm. we'll always be running uh, with a debt. You know, the magnitude of that debt might vary over time, but I think we will always be in debt. So from that perspective, you might say, well, yeah, we'll never repay the debt. Uh, but I don't think that's, you know, necessarily the most informative way of thinking about it. I think, you know, the way to maybe think about it is ever so often the treasurer will run these options where they're selling uh, all of these financial instruments, T-bills, bonds, notes, so on and so on. And they're selling these things to specific people and they have specific maturity dates and they have all kind of other con- uh, conditions attached to them. And those conditions or requirements need to be satisfied. And it's a contract. And so from that perspective, yes, the government has to repay its debt. Uh, and it does so, you know, as specified on each of the instruments that they sell, uh, but in a more macro aggregate uh, perspective, and we'll, we will always be, in my estimation, we will always be running with a with a massive debt. Yeah, I'm, I apologize for the oversimplification there. I guess I, I'm right. more curious about you know the debt has grown. How can you give me a sense of how how much the debt has grown in say the last um, couple of decades? It's grown. I mean, it's growing exponentially, is it, is it not? Yes. Yes. Is that sustainable? Is there a time when we have to say, you know, we keep at, we keep raising the debt ceiling. Is there a time when we can actually, you know, not just so, slow this debt, but stop well, it? Well, one of the questions is really just what is our ability to pay? So you look at the debt in terms of your ability to pay. I mean, as is as long as the economy stay continues to grow, and we have a very robust economy, and we have a, a revenue system that you know translates that robust economic growth into into tax revenues, um, uh, then we can generally pay our debts uh, as long as the debts aren't too high. So the question really becomes is kind of when are the debts too high? Um, at one time, we we thought generally if you have if you're running debts at about 100% of your GDP, you're in you're in you're in a kind of a warning zone. Um, generally, countries that run 125, 130, 140% of uh, debt to GDP, then they're in trouble. Um, so, uh, but we have a very robust economy, um, but we need but we just don't print money necessarily to cover all our debt. There is some uh, some economic theory that says basically that we can just continue printing money, and it doesn't really to cover our debts, to pay our debt service, and it doesn't really matter what that is. But um, from my perspective, that's not the case. So we always have to be concerned about our ability to pay. Now, we are nowhere near, from my perspective, uh, where we, from an ability to pay perspective, we do not have the ability to pay our debt. We have the ability to pay our debt. We have the ability to even take on more debt. 
But the issue becomes, um, do you have flexibility? Um, do you have a financial capacity, fiscal capacity, when you run into serious problems like recessions, uh, great recessions, depressions, um, uh, pandemics? Um, do you have some slack in the system and some slack in your debt capacity so that you can take on more debt when you need to take on more debt in emergency situations or in situations that just require you to either do a lot of spending or maybe even uh, you can't raise revenues to meet certain spending pro or programmatic needs. And, that, and I say that from the perspective as a nation. And what, so what we don't want to do is we don't want to be kind of to the brink of where we have very little capacity and the economy is not growing and then we can run into a very tough situation where we have economic we have economic downturns and we need to finance more spending but we really can't without running into some serious problems like inflation and uh and furthering you know an economic recession into a depression things like that so the issue to me is kind of wise fiscal management or wise financial management it's not a matter of is there a certain tipping point, at least anywhere in the near future, where we won't have the ability to pay our debts in that sense. Yeah. Um, you mentioned recession and inflation. I mean, those were economic issues that have been um, with us quite for some, for some time. And there's been a, very, a variety of opinions out there about whether we're really headed for a recession and what really is going to be happening with the ability of the Fed to bring down interest rates um, and and cool inflation and so forth. Um, it, any any reason to think that this deal is going to change some of those calculations about what, uh, the likelihood of entering a recession, or is that still a, a an, an existing economic circumstance that really isn't affected by the deal that was just struck? And uh, DJ, I don't know if you want to take that first. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um Actually, the fact that they did put a deal together and that, um, again, it's it, it's not taking away a lot in terms of government spending. So I think right now the probability of, of um, a recession is probably less than it was three months ago. Um, I, I actually feel pretty good. I mean, it, it, it looks right now like the, the Federal Reserve is going to back off some of the interest rate rises. Um, and inflation, I think, is, well, it's not under control. At least they've got kind of a handle on it. So my view is that while we might not have a booming economy, I also don't think that we're in line for any serious recession at this point. Yeah, my, my sense is I don't, I, I don't get the sense that this uh, deal will have any effect on the likelihood of a recession. And I say that because if you look, you know, so the, the tagline that everyone is talking about is, you know, this deal will reduce the deficit by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. And I think it's very important to consider that last part over the next 10 years. Yeah. And I get very skeptical when you start telling me numbers of, you know, telling me what's going to happen 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, so in if, if you want to assess the, let's say, the financial impact, direct financial impact of this bill, to me, it doesn't make sense to look beyond the next two years. Yeah, and there you're talking about anywhere from you know, maybe one eighty to two hundred billion dollars of reduced deficit. And I think it's important for at least you know the listeners and, and so on to kind of think about this. You have that immediate impact, and they're basically assuming that that will carry forward over the next ten years, adjusted for inflation and so on. Um, I mean, two years from now, we are in a new administration, potentially, with very different preferences and all kinds of spending policies and tax policies get implemented. And all of this is not, right? I mean, this idea of a $1.5 trillion. So I don't, think it, I don't think there is a lot of information to be gained in thinking about years five through 10. Um, I'm not too sure, you know, you get much looking at year five. So year one and two, where there's something definitive we will have these caps for these two years and this for this year and then you're assuming making some assumptions about future years uh, and so if you look at that scale you know it's like i said you know maybe you could be generous and say a little bit over 200 billion dollars in impact um, and if you look at the deficit as looking at the deficit uh, as reported by the omb for 2022 um, that number was uh, the deficit for that period was you know in excess of a trillion dollars 
Yeah, so, so if you think about that, 22 deficit, about $1.3 trillion, you're knocking off $200 billion projected going forward. Yeah, to me seems quite small. Let's put it this way. Yeah, they, so I, I don't know that this effect. I think that the part of this that I think has an effect on the likelihood of a recession is the fact that we have a deal and that the debt limit is higher right. and the government will continue to pay its sales. That's the part I, I, that I think is important. Yeah. I, I'd agree with um, those comments. I think that the deal puts less pressure on the Fed to continue raising rates. And I think that's a that's a good thing um, in relationship to the, the probability of a recession. So I think it reduces the probability of a recession just because of that, as well as it just it reduces pressure on on Treasury rates uh, going forward. So I think in, in that sense, too, it's a overall it's a, it's a good deal relative to a recession. That doesn't mean that a recession is 100 uh, percent that we're not going to have a recession over the near future or the near term. Uh, but I think the deal itself produces uh, a, a good result for the economy overall. Just to right. add, add just, just to follow up very, I'm sorry, just to follow up very quickly. I think it's important what Craig just said. Uh, and I, it's to distinguish between the two parts of the deal. One part is the debt limit is higher, and that has all the effects that Craig just talked about. Uh, you know, lower pressure on, on interest rates on the all the various financial instruments issued by the Treasury, uh, on lifting uncertainty in the economy and you know all the different pressures on the Fed and so on. So that's one part of it. We could have had that effect with none of the other stuff about discretionary caps and cutting funding and work requirements and all that kind of stuff. You know, we could have just said that that limit is now higher and we'd have gotten all of those benefits. So my comment is really about all these other parts of the deal, capping spending, work requirements, rescinding funds, pausing or unpausing the student loan uh, uh, kind of gaps and so on. Like cumulatively, those I think will will not really move the needle in terms of mm -hmm. you know, the likelihood of a recession. Um, Denville, I know that you have uh, you have to leave us here in about five minutes, and I wanted to ask you about cutting IRS funding because I, I know you've done a lot of research on on that area. Um, you know, there were cuts. They weren't drastic cuts. But can you talk about the, the idea of cutting funding to the IRS as a part, as an overall strategy? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny going back to your earlier question about uh, taxes being part of the deal. And not only weren't higher taxes excluded from the deal, but we actually went in the other direction uh, of reducing funding for the agents responsible for uh, facilitating tax collections. Um, and so, I, you know, my sense is that the reason for that is not so much that it's, I think people just really, dis, not some people I think really dislike the IRS. Um, and I think, you know, it's counterproductive. If you look at the CBO analysis, you know, we rescinded some funds from the IRS and that led to lower revenues, at least according to the projections. The projections is that we'll collect uh, less revenue because we cut the IRS budget. And if you think about that from the overarching goal of reducing the deficit, what you've done is said, well, we want to cut expenditures because that will reduce the deficit. So we're going to take back this money that we appropriated to the IRS. And that is going to cause our deficit to be smaller because we're spending less. Well, the consequence of that, as predicted by the CBO, is that you then collect less revenue, and reducing the amount of revenues you collect will increase your deficit. And the net effect, as they've shown in this in this uh, report, is that the reduction in revenue associated with this reduction in, its, in spending is actually bigger than the reduction in spending. And consequently, they're projecting that this one move is going to cause this the deficit to actually increase over this time period. Uh, so if we, you know, if we take the projection, the scoring from the CBO at face value, this is quite an unproductive move with respect to the overarching goal of reducing deficits. And so it can't, you can't then explain this provision in the deal as one of, oh, we want to reduce the deficit. It has to be something else, right? Yeah. And my sense is that it's, it's a general disdain for the IRS for whatever reasons. Um, 
out there. Um, so, so that's pretty much, you know, I guess what I can <laughs> right. say about it. It's, one it's the, quite counterproductive. It's definitely a, a political move rather than a, a fiscal move or a financial move, right? So, that's right. Laurie? Yeah, I actually wanted to turn to um, another aspect of all of this, which is the fact that um, military spending was completely off the table. Um, I think I saw, in fact, saw some comment, uh, one of the, I think, Republican senators um, uh, saying that uh, even, even with this, we're still underfunding our Defense Department, uh, and yet we, I believe, according to um, you know, other world population sources. We, U.S. leads the world in military spending, um, three times as much as the next country, which is China. Um, we've increased that. Uh, what, what, and Craig, I think you've, um, you've commented on this before, is, is what, where are we with, really with military spending and, are there aspects of what we're spending there in that budget that are going to have to be looked at, much like we have to look at revenue? Can I add that we have a question about that very thing from Dennis, and it's uh, it's kind of a question or kind of a comment with a question, and it talks about why are we spending so much on defense, and why don't we reallocate some of that to things like health and childcare and those kind of areas? So, I just want to mention yeah. Dennis had called in. Yeah, Craig, do you uh, could you speak to the just speak to the military spending aspects? Um, well, I think there's going to be tremendous pressure going forward for more military spending, uh, more defense spending, um, especially from uh, the right. I think that's one of the issues that almost tripped up the deal. Uh, and to me, it's um, uh, it's a, it's an issue. Uh, it's going to be a political issue during the. Um, the presidential campaign um and one of the reasons i mean the primary reason is you know uh, what's going on in ukraine what's going what's going on with china and taiwan um and other uh, uh basically military uh interests we have around the world and i think it's going to be very difficult to protect non-defense spending frankly going forward uh, given given that I, I i think there's a constituency around um defense spending um, that's very, very strong, and it involves government officials, it involves lobbyists, it involves private contractors that produce weapon systems, and everything in that in that in that area is very, very expensive. Um, it's very, very lucrative, and um, there's going to be tremendous pressure kind of going forward to um, to maximize uh, defense spending under the caps, and then actually going forward to to take the caps basically and. Uh, and vote the caps uh, into non-existence, similarly what we did uh, with previous um, spending caps uh, going forward. Um, so I think that's going to be a, a very big issue going forward. And I think the people who want to protect the non-defense spending need to really get their ducks in order in order to be able to do that, frankly. So I, I have a question. I know this is a very sensitive area, but. Uh, it's the area that the Democrats were were wanting to protect the uh, the social programs like Medicare and Social Security, but it's so much of so much of the budget um, anymore, and so much of the debt. What things can be done with Social Security or Medicare that might be um, palatable to the American people? Are there things um, that could be done on the edges of those programs that could uh, not be political suicide. Well, my perspective on that is that what should be done really should be done on the revenue side, not on the expenditure side. In other words, I don't think we should cut benefits. I don't think we should expand um, uh, eligibility, I mean, reduce eligibility, things like that. I think that there's, a, there's very straightforward solutions on the revenue side and the payroll tax for Social Security and Medicare. Now, especially Social Security. In my opinion, there's no excuse to, 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 to not absolutely make Social Security, the Social Security trust funds solvent for my generation and the generation behind me. There's no excuse. Medicare, it's gonna be a little bit more difficult. It's gonna take a little bit more long-term strategy and it may involve some cuts on the, on the expenditure side. But for Social Security, it's a very solvable problem if we could just kind of 
cut to the chase. And um, and I think this is a, an opportunity that the Democrats have missed, frankly, going forward. I think on the revenue side, um, providing additional revenues to shore up social, the Social Security trust funds, I think um, with the American people, that will be a no-brainer, frankly. Mm-hmm. So who who pays that then? The, the Social Security taxes that, that you know, come out of you know, individuals' paychecks, is that how that works? Yeah, yeah that's how that that's how that works. Um, but you know, it's capped now, so after a certain amount of income, you no longer right. pay right. that tax. You can easily expand that. You can create a donut hole, basically, where you know people in the middle class maybe don't pay any more taxes, and people with higher incomes then pay more taxes. There's a number of kind of different ways you could do it, and it's um, it's not. I don't. Uh, and I say I guess from a fiscal perspective, a budgetary perspective, it's straightforward. Of course, from a political perspective, it's not going to be all that easy to do. But in terms of uh, on the tax side, the, one of the major issues is going to be the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that going forward. That's going to be a huge political issue in the uh, in the presidential campaign. Whether we make those individual income tax provisions of uh, the Trump tax reform, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, permanent or not, because right now they're temporary. Um, so that's going to be even more difficult challenge, I think, uh, if you don't couple it with the payroll, so some changes in the payroll tax to shore up Social Security. Because that money would just go into the general fund. It wouldn't go into Social Security trust funds to, to make Social Security trust funds more solvent. Can you explain what's temporary and what's permanent about those tax cuts? I was under the impression that some of the higher end are permanent. Well, the corporate side is permanent. The corporate tax cuts were permanent. Most of the individual income tax revisions are not permanent. So basically, and that would include the schedule of tax rates. That Those schedule of tax rates expire and they revert back to the pre-act tax rates, uh, which had a maximum of 39.6%. Uh, unless they're made permanent by Congress. And and when do they expire? Um, January 1, 2025. Okay. All right. So after the presidential election. Right, and right after, yes. Right so after it's going to be a campaign issue for that election. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's important to understand that um, Congress, if, if, they, if they want to, can change the corporate tax rates. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, so... Uh, this is, I mean, Social Security has always been a pay-as-you-go system, meaning that, that literally um, a person's Social Security check is being paid for by contributions that are coming into the system from Social Security. And, and, and that's always been the problem. I mean, when Social Security started, you, I think you had like five or six um, uh, workers for every one retiree. Now it's like two to one. So just the demographics of an aging population is it's part of the problem right and the only way to do that is to increase the amount of taxes coming in right right i wonder if we can talk at the extent that uh you've got insight in this um you know we were all obviously concerned about what this made the u.s <laughs> look like this fight over the debt limit and and our standing globally um what where do you think we are given that we've reached this deal now even though it was at the last minute um has the u.s suffered um in a more permanent way sustained way i should say simply because this was such a difficult process when it it shouldn't have been do you, either of you um uh, dj or craig have a have an insight into that well i'll let craig go first on this one since he's in public policy <laughs> Well, I think this is a a chink in the armor, so to speak. You know, I do think that it hurts our reputation. It hurts our reputational capital around the world. Um, But the bottom line is the center held. So that's a very important thing as well, that uh, the system to outside observers and financial markets uh, around the world, I view that the system held, even though I would say, and I would be surprised if there wasn't going to be a little greater risk premium uh, attached to Treasury securities. Generally speaking, we believe that uh, we say uh, internationally that um, the the United States Treasury security is the only default-free or risk-free security in the world. That is continuing to be kind of chipped away, and I think our competitors um, appreciate that. uh, We have competitors internationally, and they would like to see us kind of move down the peg, if you will, in terms of our risk premium. And, uh, and have a more risk premium. So I do think it's gonna be more expensive for us to borrow. 
uh, over the short term. Uh, over the longer term, uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, mm -hmm. But this does bring us down a peg. Uh, but it's to me, it's somewhat like January 6th. I mean, you know, it, you, you look at it from the outside and even inside and you say, wow, this is this shouldn't be happening in the United States. What's going on here? Um, but at the same time, this the system did hold and we did uh, put a new president in office. So, you know, the, I, but my point would be primarily that people are looking at us with uh, a little more scans than they did before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other specific about this bill had had to do with uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Uh, and it, it, just for clarity's sake, and uh, I, this is, I got a little, frankly, a bit uh, confused about exactly what got given up. I realized we, student loan payments were suspended during the pandemic. Those are resuming. But then actually forgiving the entire debt that a particular uh, former student might have uh, is what I, I believe has uh, fell by the wayside in this in this deal, uh, but Biden could could propose that again, presumably. Yeah. Well, that, that was th those those student loan repayments were already in in jeopardy simply because there were a lot of um, uh, litigation and uh, right. lawsuits that, mm -hmm. that were pulling that back. So I, I I think regardless of what came up in the debt deal. The, the the full forgiveness of what was it I think twenty thousand mm -hmm. uh, under certain circumstances, I think that's by the wayside. Hopefully they'll come up with something or come up with some way to support um, the students and the student loans. But but right now what had been proposed uh, back during the pandemic, I I think that that's going to go away and they're going to come up hopefully with something different. Yeah, I was just going to mention that we hope to do a show in the next couple of weeks about the cases before the Supreme Court, and there is a case on the on the uh, whether that's a, an allowable thing for President Biden to do. So we'll be talking about that. We have about five minutes to go in the program. There are a few things that we still haven't quite gotten to, but I want to go back to this to this political part of it and and try to get from each of you i mean how are how are the political parties going to try to um spin this debt deal as as we go toward the next election what were, what were the best things that happened for the democrats and the best things that happened for the republicans in, in your mind craig well i think the best thing that happened for the democrats is that we didn't uh, default our obligations yeah. Because I think for President Biden running for re-election, that would have been a disaster, frankly. Um, I, I think uh, for the Republicans, I think um, uh, Speaker McCarthy solidified his position. I think um, going into his speakership, he came in there basically uh, very shaky. Um, and there was a real question as to whether or not he was going to be able to uh, put together any deal uh, um, for the House. And he did that. And he um, he was able to uh, um, work um, with President Biden to come up with this deal. And I think that that really makes his position much stronger. Um, not that he doesn't have a, a far right to, to deal with going forward. He does. Um, but he's in a much stronger position now than he was when he got elected speaker, frankly. Mm -hmm. If I could just follow up on that, you know, part of his the deal of him becoming speaker was agreeing to the, you know, a, a single member of the House can uh, bring a motion to have him fired <laughs> as speaker. Um, and uh, that was, you know, the speculation, of course, was that if he didn't follow through on the demands that were being uh, put forth by, uh, I believe it's the Freedom Caucus, that he was he was going to be at risk of losing his job. And that doesn't seem to be what, certainly not his perspective. Um, of course, he probably wouldn't speak to that. But just to continue on that, would you would you say that he's because he's managed to pull from the center and frankly get Democrats uh, uh, on his side as well for this deal um, that that his that he really isn't going to face that kind of a recall, at least not in the immediate term. Yeah, I was just listening to some of the Freedom Caucus members. And um, they seemed very hesitant to say that they were going to, at least individually, uh, call for his ouster. Um, I think they're in the process of uh, talking amongst their, their, uh, their caucus and seeing if they can come up with a unified position. But um, some of the, even the firebrands were 
were not willing to just say that they were going to call for a vote on the speakership. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you saw even um, uh, folks like Matt Gates were, were basically saying, um, yeah, you know, the deal's a deal and it goes with it. I, I think the big issue is McCarthy is probably in a better position than he was before. And the other thing is, I don't know that there's anybody that they would really put up to replace him right now. He may be the, the sort of Hobson's choice of the whole deal. He would probably get some support on both sides of the aisle, could depend yeah. on on who was uh, who else was put up. Because it's not going to be Hakeem Jeffries. He's not going to. He didn't have enough votes to win. Um, one of you, and I can't remember which one it was. I apologize. Talked about political cover that each side, the the right and the left, got. Can you say more about that? What kind of political cover does, say, a Bernie Sanders or somebody who voted against it on the Senate side or or Matt Gates or somebody who voted against it on the Republican side have? Victoria Sparks, she was the only Republican in Indiana who voted against it. What kind of political cover she's not running. do they have? Well, yeah, she's not running. But. <laughs> yeah, I, and I thought that was very irresponsible of her to, to get out there and, and say those things she did yeah. to try to torpedo the deal somewhat, especially given the fact that she's not running. Yeah. Um, but going back to uh, Bernie Sanders and other people like that, I think that um, you know, it, it enables them to go to their constituents and say they, they were against the deal. And they were against specific portions of the deal, um, cuts in social, cuts in SNAP or TANF, things like that. Um, and so it, it enables them to kind of remain pure going into the presidential election or in other uh, elections down the road. Um, and I think that's a win-win for everybody in that sense, frankly. And, that, and that's when good deals kind of get done, when everybody can kind of walk out and save face to some extent. Right. Um, and this deal enabled that to happen. And I think President Biden uh, needs to take some credit for that because he's a very shrewd operator. He's been, he's been right. doing these deals for a very, very long time. Yeah. He saw the outcome before many other people, frankly, saw the outcome. And, okay. I, and I think we're, we should give him credit for that. Frankly. Thank you. We're, we're running out of time. I'm sorry I asked that question too late. But thank you very, <laughs> very much, Craig Johnson and DJ Masson, for being here with us today. And also Denville Duncan, who had to leave a little early. For uh, Lori McRobbie, my co-host, and Nathan Moore, our producer, Mike Pashkash, our engineer. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org.